can have one foot in the hope of the prophets in the past, and another, you know, foot standing in the promises of God's future. And in, if we are reaching in that way, we can stand in the present without being consumed by it, without believing that whatever story is being told right now is actually the ultimate story. It's not. It never has been. Welcome to The Collective Table, the ultimate female perspective on Jesus, justice, and joy, with your hosts, Chelsea Simon, Dana Black, and Claire Watson. We're so glad that you're here for this seventh season called The Sermon Podcast Hour. During this season, Chelsea, Claire, and I are going to interview some of our favorite preachers about a sermon they've given. These sermons will be following the lectionary calendar from Epiphany all the way until Easter. In the various episodes, not only will you hear clips from the sermon, you will also get to hear the follow-up conversation with the preacher. Each preacher brings their own unique experiences, interpretations, and preaching styles. Our hope is to provide a well-rounded and expansive view of the scriptures, God, and ourselves. We hope you enjoy it. All right, folks, we are kicking off episode one of season seven with Nadia Boltz-Weber. Claire and I had an exciting conversation with Nadia, and we hope you enjoy it. For those who aren't familiar, Nadia is an ordained Lutheran pastor. She's the founder of House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado, and also the New York Times bestselling memoirs that she's written are Pastrix, Accidental Saints, and Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. Tune in, folks. It's going to be good. We are so excited that you're with us today for our first episode of Season 7, the Sermon Podcast Hour, and we are thrilled to be joined with Nadia Boltz-Weber, and we're going to talk about Epiphany. With that, we want to talk a little bit about the reflection that you gave on January 6th of 2021 about Epiphany. Really talk a little bit about what I felt like I heard were some of the themes, the intersectionality of fear and masculinity, what that looks like, how that comes out in the text then, and what it looks like today. This came out on January 6th. Was this intentional? It felt like watching the insurrection unfold on Epiphany. I mean, talk about insecure masculinity on display. I think that, you know, when the insurrection happened nearly two years ago on Epiphany, and we're all just like dumbfounded in our homes watching this happen. I just tweeted a statement about it being like, Herod was so insecure that he had to resort to violence and coercion out of his absolute insecurity. So it, I mean, for it to happen on the feast day of Epiphany just felt like it was a, a ball straight across the plate for anybody paying attention. <laughs> Something that I was thinking about as I was listening and then I looked at the the timestamp on this reflection and it being January 6th, it made me curious about not just your preaching process, but about the way you read scripture. As you're watching the events of January 6th unfold on your television, is your mind jumping straight to that text or is it more vice versa or what what does that look like? Being a preacher is a contemplative life. I'm constantly 
in some sort of part of the word, you know, I'm always thinking about what I'm preaching next. And so I, I sort of dwell as cheesy as it sounds, like I really dwell in that text and it, it's a contemplative practice. So I think about that if, if a, a text having to do with a season or that I'm preaching on coming up, I think about that text when I'm out on my walk and then I, I think about it in the shower. I have my brain trained when I wake up in the middle of the night because, you know, I'm of that age where you don't sleep straight through the night anymore. And uh, if I wake up in the middle of the night, I have my brain trained to go through the text until I go back to sleep. And my friends, my who most of my, I mean, a lot of my friends are clergy as well. And so if we're talking on the phone, I'm like, hey, can we talk about the text for a minute? When I was in my parish and I did pastoral care at the end of each time, I'd say, hey, can we read the text together? So you're really marinating in it. You know, I, I, I describe it as having like a not very interesting mental illness to like think about scripture constantly. It's kind of all the time. So that that's my main contemplative practice is that I'm a preacher. So my process is to, to a large extent, it's that. And then I go, okay, what in this text matches something I'm struggling with or matches something that the world is struggling with or that we're all encountering right now. I try to pull it down into the dirt of our reality as much as I can in my preaching. Because, you know, scripture, if you struggle with it long enough, it will hand over the goods. That's my my process. So you'll see if you ever read my sermons, I'm always referencing either something I'm struggling with or something that's going on in the world. It's never just you know, in the first century, they had all of these, you know what I mean? It, I Because I'm a Lutheran and Lutherans have a very particular view of what preaching is. Preaching is a huge focus in our tradition. When I first started hanging out with like evangelicals a little more, like free church people, they would talk about somebody being the teaching pastor. I didn't know what, the, I thought it was like the guy in charge of Sunday school or so. I didn't know what that meant, teaching pastor. And what they mean is the preacher. But I didn't know what they were talking about because in the Lutheran tradition, teaching and preaching are very different functions. And so for us, if from the pulpit, you hear basically a lot of interesting information about the text, that's lovely. It's not a sermon. And so, you know, a lot of preachers will go on to Text Week and different websites. And I swear, 98% of what you see online, if you're trying to preach, is information about the text. And unless that information helps crack open something inside the heart, the breaking hearts of people, who the hell cares? It doesn't matter. Right, right. You know, I had a, a worship professor at Luther Seminary who said, you know, what are we doing in worship? And someone's like, well, we pray for the world or we, you know, um, join our hearts in praise and all of these things. It, they're all true. But ultimately, he goes, we raise the dead. If you can't sort of raise the dead, the dead, you being included in the population called the dead in the proclamation, then it's to, to Lutherans, it's, it's not like preaching. And in order to get there, it takes a lot of time. And that's why I encourage congregations to make sure their preacher's week is not unnecessarily squandered through meetings where nothing actually happens. For sure, you should set aside time for preachers to have a, enough time to live a contemplative life. Wow, that's a great message right there. <laughs> so I'm a youth pastor right now, and 
I would say this kind of stuff gets amplified and I'm not even preaching to them, you would say. I'm not like giving getting up and giving teenagers a sermon every week. I'm I'm with them in youth group settings. But I would say this type of stuff is certainly amplified with them because they they don't care about my master of divinity degree or where that's from or if I what ancient languages I've taken. Like they want to know that like I'm with them in all the junk of their lives and like they they want to hear scripture come to life for them in, in their own time and they, they don't care if I can tell them what stuff means in, in Hebrew. If you go back you can see the past in the like the past several sermons I've posted, I did say, "Oh, hey, this word in Greek means this." But the only reason is to get to the function of the sermon, and we call it law and gospel, law, L-A-W, law and gospel preaching. In in my tradition, that's what it's called. Where you go, basically, you go. It's hard to understand why the good news is good if we're not willing to talk about why the bad news is bad. You know, we can try to not need God. We can try to not need each other. But, you know, history has shown that living as little individual narcissists, are, you know, our species doesn't won't exist in a generation. Right? We're not made for that. And so to be able to sort of illuminate human folly as a way of which some people would say sin as a way of going, here's why this is good news, like that God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Like that's the whole point. So there are times I go and I say, gosh, do you guys realize that the Greek word means this? When I realized that I was like, it means this whole thing is different than I was taught or whatever. So it's never to, as they say, show your exegetical underwear, like the, the congregation wants to know you have it on. They don't want to see it, you know? <laughs> Yeah, that makes complete sense. That's really good. At the end of the day, if the good news is alive and well, the document has to come to life today. It can't be just a regurgitation of in this time period, here's the context. Yeah, like who? That doesn't matter. That's not alive. We say this is a living document. It is breathing. Okay, well, let's bring it to life. And I think that's what we see in your epiphany sermon, where you really do talk about these two men. You talk about Herod, you talk about Joseph. You talk about one being powerful, even though he's a puppet, he's powerful, one not. And yet the one who's powerful is afraid. And that is a really significant topic in the world that we live in today is fear. This is what fear does. Fear disguises itself in so many ways as greed, hate, isolation, addiction, the list is endless. But in the end, fear is at the root of all of it. In the text, does say he was afraid. And it never says Joseph was afraid, you know? And then we see what unfolds from that. I want to talk about fear and what that looks like for then and then what it looks like today. And and when and when we do see things like the insurrection on January 6th, this fear, what it can lead to, it, it's the violence, it's the anger, the frustration, and where does this come from? And so I think those are maybe interesting things to kind of wrestle with. And there's not necessarily an answer, but I just thought it would be interesting to kind of talk about fear, what it looks like, how it manifests itself. Um, where was it coming from for Herod? I think it's important if we are going to do something like go, oh man, like where did the fear originate that we then see being demonstrated in the insurrection? If we're going to do that, and that's fair game, you can't leave it at that. You have to do the next turn, which is, and where is it in us? And where does it leave? You know, because 
if if it's always going, you know, we know that we can see the problem and it's out there. Nothing changes in the world, you know. So in terms of fear, I think I've ended up preaching about fear a lot just because there's so many times where Jesus and angels say, do not be afraid, right? And if that, if it wasn't something that human beings naturally defaulted to that was, can be really damaging, that would not show up in the text over and over and over again. And I have a lot of things I'm afraid of. I have a a lecture I'm giving right now about anxiety and fear and, and Jesus. And I start by like listing things I'm afraid of, you know, and, um, so Some of them are funny and some of them aren't. It is natural for us to have fear, but then it's like to go, okay, but is that thing that we're afraid of, is it happening right now? In my home here in Denver, Colorado, are all of the things I'm afraid of surrounding me? Because if they aren't, and yet that's where my spirit is dwelling, I miss every good and beautiful thing that is happening around me right now. I miss what the, like noticing what the trees outside my window look like with their leaves stripped from them. And I, you know what I mean? I, it's a thief. Fear is always a thief. I know in myself, when fear meets insecurity, that's where I don't always behave well. I'll just say. I think it's a common thing for most people. <laughs> you know, I, maybe Joseph didn't have that innate insecurity that Herod did. I think sometimes when you accumulate a lot of wealth and power, it actually brings with it more and more insecurity because you have so much you could lose. Whereas when you don't have all of that, you don't live in this insecurity of what if it's gone? There's nothing to lose, you know? I think that's an interesting thing for really privileged people to dwell on. I, you know, I had a situation. It's very hard work internally to be able to see our insecurities. You know, we don't want them to be there. We, I don't want them to be there. And yet they are. And when they go unacknowledged, they have so much more power. So if I'm insecure about a relationship in my life, if I'm insecure about my own intellect, if I'm insecure about uh, my financial uh, my ability to support myself financially, anything like that. Then when you add fear to it, you end up having these self-protective mechanisms that kick in that don't always serve us and the people in our lives. I am a believer that even in every moment we show up with this preoccupation with self, not selfish, but preoccupation with self. So even coming here this morning, right? There's a fear, a fear that it won't go well, a fear that we won't have an authentic conversation. Like this is a minor situation compared to what we're talking about when we when we're thinking about Herod or when we're thinking about the insurrection or other very violent situations, mass shootings, for example. But it's still real, it's still relevant. And if I can't name those and put them front and center, then how am I ever gonna be able to move forward and overcome and address it? So I think that you're you you just hit it right on the head. Right. Yeah. It's humbling being a human being. Yeah. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot lately about self-projection and just things that I hold inside that I, that we as humans sometimes refuse to confront um, or take forever to confront it. It ends up coming out in different malformed ways. I like what you said about when we started to ask you about Herod's fear, you immediately we're like, let's let's check our own fear. And it reminded me of a quote from your reflection. You talked about not maligning certain traits with masculinity. We really need to start having better conversations about men. 
I don't think that maligning traits that have historically been seen as masculine is helpful. I want to start lifting up examples of beneficent masculinity. I'd love for you to say more about that. Yeah, I think I think we do a horrible job talking about masculinity right now. And I understand why there's a conversation around toxic masculinity. And of course, that conversation needed to happen. But I, I don't know how helpful it is when the only thing that seems in certain circles that are affirm that is affirmed in men is if they have the ability to demonstrate what we've always considered feminine traits, we commend them for being nurturing, we commend them for being a good parent, we commend you know what I mean? For being sensitive. And that's fine. But what message does that give our boys to say the innate traits that that we have always labeled it as masculine, especially in progressive circles, are maligned. They aren't actually celebrated. You don't have these like videos online going, oh, wow, look how great it is that this man has this instinct to protect his family, right? I mean, there are certain things that are traits that we classically considered masculine that we need, that our society needs, that our family needs. And I think having better sort of robust celebratory conversations about that and naming those things would really serve us right now. I mean, it's the same that it feels like the oddly, the traits that are commended in females and girls are if they're good at sports, if they want to go into STEM, if they, do you know what I mean? It's like, if they're adept at things that are classically considered masculine, we're like, go girl. I understand there's this corrective moment around gender stereotypes and whatnot now, and that's fine. But I think we we could do a lot better you know, without defaulting to the way it was like in the 50s, you know? Like my, I, I've actually said to my partner, Eric, you have such a beautiful masculinity. He has an unthreatenable masculinity. And it's it that it is. It's masculinity. And it's beautiful. And I cherish it in him. He is so protective of the people in his life. Like if you are out and about with him, he'll he'll be aware of like if the sidewalk is janky, he'll just be like, hey, be careful. Like, <laughs> like he has this awareness of uh, really wanting to protect the people people in his life. And that's beautiful. I don't think that way, you know, and I love that about him. It's interesting because what I hear is he, he actually is perceptive about obstacles that may hurt people he loves, which I mean, I don't know. I think about, I'm a mom. I got, I have three kids, 23, 16, and 14. And I don't know if it's because of them or I want to believe because there's something inside me, but I do think I pay attention to, well, okay, that, that may not be safe, especially working with older congregations. Oh, hold on. We might want to check that stair right there because it's not gonna, it's interesting to think about that as is it masculine or feminine, or is it just, we care about people. Like we care about the relationships that we have with individuals. Well, I, I did an event with Sebastian Younger recently, and he, he wrote the book Tribe, which was, was like embedded with these combat units. And, but he has, he's an anthropologist. He said in the Aurora 
theater, a movie theater shooting. He goes, look, there were, there were, I think three young men. I could be wrong, but I, I think he said that there were three young men who died because they threw themselves in front of their girlfriends and that it wasn't reversed. So, I mean, I don't want to get into this like, oh, all men are this way or all women are this way. But I just think we don't do ourselves favors if we, if we don't, if we aren't lifting up uh, stories about beneficent masculinity and say, we're so grateful for this, right? You think about Joseph and he's not afraid, but he does some really radical things to protect his family. Totally, exactly. With fear cast out, Joseph was able to believe it possible that God's redemptive work can happen anywhere, even Egypt. With fear cast out, Joseph no longer had to see everything through the lens of what it was in the past. With fear cast out, he was able to beat a king, protect his wife and child, and preserve that which is good in the face of tyranny. And like, that's why I called it like, it, it's a tale of two masculinities. Like he is demonstrating and I am going to protect my family, even if it means going to Egypt, which was like, that's a, that in their psyche, I'm sure was not a safe place, but he, but he had this imagination and a sort of deep spirituality that allowed him to have this trust, you know, as opposed to Herod, who I think in my book, Accidental Saints, I described Herod as an insecure troglodyte who puts a hit out on a toddler. <laughs> like this. <laughs> you use the word, I'm, I'm going to show, you know, maybe I need to play Scrabble more, but benef- beneficent. Am I saying that correctly? Beneficent? <laughs> beneficent, yes. Do you mind unpacking that and telling us what you mean by beneficent mas- masculinity? It's like, what's the opposite of toxic, right? Mm-hmm. That's where I was trying to go with that. Yeah. Is that if we're going to talk about toxic masculinity, which look, don't get me wrong, that is everywhere. You know, I mean, it, I mean, I've experienced it my whole life. So I'm not trying to downplay the fact that we need to have that conversation, but to go, what's then the opposite of that? So that that's why I use that word. Now, I could have made the word up and I certainly could have made the um, pronunciation. Up. So don't always trust what I say, but I'm pretty sure it's a word. <laughs> it's a created word. <laughs> you can make up words all the time. <laughs> it makes me wonder if we're talking about having that conversation of what it means to empower people in their masculinity. What would it look like for a new generation of masculine presenting people to be empowered in those traits. I remember I was walking down the street with Teek Milan. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a very well-known black trans man. And we had just done The Moth in Portland and we were both going back to the hotel at the same time. And he just very gently made sure that I was on his left as we were walking down the street, that he was closest to the cars. He, he, and, and we switched at one point and he just gently said, here, why don't you walk on this side? So did I find that patronizing? Not at all. I was like, oh my gosh, that's lovely. He really wants to make sure I'm safe. I didn't find it patronizing at all. I was really grateful for it. it was, I was really touched by it. And it sounds like in order for that interaction to to almost work, like you had to be secure in yourself and who you were. Yeah. And I had to know him, you know, as a person, but yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I also, <laughs> there's a way of when you're, when you're six one and have like a very sort of dominant personality, like I, I haven't been treated like a girl in the same way a lot of women have. And so there've been times in my life where I was patronized by a man and didn't even realize it because I was like, 
much. And I described, I described the interaction to one of my girlfriends and they're like, oh my God, he was patronizing you. And I was like, he totally was. So it was like, I think I'm, I don't always default to thinking I'm being patronized. But then when I realize that's what's happening, I just furious. I get this like, how dare you kind of thing, which probably isn't super helpful either. But anyway. It's also thinking about, you know, I, you know, I'm raising, I've raised or am raising two young boys, you know, one is 23, one is 16. And, and what am I as what my husband and myself, like, what do we do to demonstrate this in them? I think to myself, like, I am not the chef in our family. Like my husband is the cook. Like he, and that is now passed on to my 23 year old who loves, and it's not that it's just, he enjoys that experience. And the one thing I found that I'm kind of curious and just talking about is, is teaching. Like I found that teaching all three of my kids, the daughter, my daughter is the youngest is consent, like how to talk to people about, you know, Hey, do you mind if I, even if it's like walking on that side of you, like, is it okay with you? You know, just being able to, to seek with curiosity on where individuals are and what they feel comfortable with is to me, maybe it's been perceived as a feminine trait, but it can be a masculine trait. I think, uh, being aware of what are the ways in which we seek to exert dominance, I think is a really great lens to use. When is somebody trying to exert dominance over us? When are we trying to do it? In what ways? You can do it intellectually. You can do it in terms of personality. You can do it physically. But seeing power dynamics uh, play out with people, I think, and within ourselves and our relationships is, is important to look at as well. And that's what we see in the scripture. We see Herod, you know, power and fear coming together. And yet you see power with Joseph too. Joseph also has agency, also has power. He cares about Mary. I mean, before we you know, even get to this, Joseph decides, okay, she's pregnant. I don't want to hurt her. I, I don't want to put her out publicly. So he's intentionally trying to find a way to make it a, a, a private situation. He's, he's doing it with, I think, power, but love. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I mean, maybe it's just because I was raised in the church and Christian and in scripture and stuff, but I still do see like there's the world <laughs> and then there's the kingdom, you know, of God. And so I do still think in those terms a lot. And I think without God, human beings default very naturally to exerting dominance over others, to believing that if you have harmed me, uh, the way that I can heal from the shame of that is by harming you back. The idea that, you know, if I can hoard as much wealth as possible, I'll be secure. And it doesn't matter how that might affect people. Like, I think without God, we very naturally as humans tend to, that's what we think, you know, the, this is the story we tell ourselves. And this is the, these are the systems we establish. I wrote this about Pilate originally. When Pilate was in power, probably the people in Judea were like, oh, this guy's like all powerful. We can't escape him. We have no power. He has all the power. He has the authority, all of this stuff. But the interesting thing is, you know, at the beginning, I think it's a Matthew when they're introducing John the Baptist, like in the year that King Hezekiah died, or, you know, this guy was the governor and this dude was the emperor and this person, you know, they list all these powerful, powerful, powerful men. And it was, it's almost as if he's saying the word of the Lord is they said the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. So it's almost like they're saying, here, all the power brokers and the word of the Lord didn't come to a damn one of them. The word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness, right? That's the kingdom. 
People who you expect are going to be the ones who win. You know, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. And so Pilate, who at the time was so powerful, now literally the only reason anybody knows or says that guy's name is because it's in the Nicene Creed. Literally, he is a freaking footnote to Jesus of Nazareth. That's it. To Jesus, like the carpenter's son who went around, didn't, you know, with a bunch of weirdos and, and said the first shall be last and the last shall be first and didn't even lift a, a finger to smite the people who crucified that guy. Pilate is a footnote to Jesus. So that's the kingdom versus the world. Gospel people are free people, and free people are dangerous people. Free people aren't ruled by fear. Free people see Rome for what it is. I really struggle with, because I, I also grew up in a pretty conservative denomination, and that break between the, the world and, you know, the kingdom of God was like very, very separate. You know, I, I grew up thinking, you know, I'm not, I'm not really a, a citizen of the world. I'm a, I'm a citizen of heaven. And as I have moved away from that type of faith, I, I I see it less and less like a separation. I, I see more of God being infused in the world. And I'd love to hear more your thoughts about that idea. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. It's just like, there are those people who, who get it wrong, and there are us who get it right. And aren't we lucky to be the ones who understand the truth? Uh-uh, I don't think that at all. I think within me is every single inclination that somehow, if I'm self-centered enough, if I think of myself first, I'll get ahead and I'll win, right? All of the narrative that I'm calling the world, every single piece of it is operative inside of me. It came from the same place inside me as it came from inside everybody else who's caught up in it. I'm not free from it. It's That's the struggle. So it's that arrogance of going like, oh, they're they're the world and we're not of it. You know, it's that, it's that thing that I say that like, it just means that ultimate powers and whatever ultimate power it feels like we have right now, whether it's the insurrection or my own addiction or the ultimate power of my family trauma or of whatever, those dominant powers around us aren't ultimate powers. They're just dominant powers right now. They're just exerting dominance. But in any spiritual way, in any eternal way, they're insignificant, right? In a bigger story. That's the thing about being people of the of a story. I always say that like we can have one foot in the hope of the prophets from the past and another, you know, foot standing in the promises of God's future. And in, if we are reaching in that way, we can stand in the present without being consumed by it, without believing that whatever story is being told right now is actually the ultimate story. It's not. It never has been. When I think about this, I think about what's happening now, the violence that exists, the war in Ukraine, the regime in Iran, and a man like Putin. And that leads me to Herod and my belief that we're all created in God's image. If that's true, is God's image buried or hidden deep in people like Herod and others? And, and how do we reconcile that and look for the hope? Yeah, there has to be. I mean, if there's not, what hope do I have, really? I mean, it, because if it comes down to like, well, those of us who are like, you could say, oh, well, some people are born good and then some people are born bad. And we're the ones who are good. You know, it's bullshit. That's not true. 
right? And so I know the parts of me that are so self-serving. I know the times that I've not been totally honest. I know the times I've exerted dominance or the time I manipulate things to get my own way. I know all those. Now, are they obvious on the outside? No, probably not. Well, sometimes they probably are, but often not. But I know it, right? I know that that's there. And if the message is that only these, there are these people who are absolute horrible sinners and they're the ones who get everything wrong and screw everything up. And that's not us. If we believe that, what hope do I have knowing that that stuff is, is in there, right? What do I do with that then? Just keep pretending it's not there or letting it be in the driver's seat continually. I mean, in order for me to actually have that real hope of my own sort of salvation, of my own redemption, of the fact that my my character defects are not the final word, then I have to believe that that's true of everyone else as well. And that sucks because I would rather believe that they're the horrible, irredeemable people. But like I'm I'm the interim pastor at the women's prison right now. So I'm spending a couple of days a week with people who killed other people. So is that all of who they are? Are they irredeemable? No, I see also the way they love each other and they take care of each other and they can have incredible wisdom and kindness to them. Nobody's ever only one thing. Yeah. And and I just think it's an important message for everybody to hear. So I I always think about that. I'm like, even as terrible as I know a a lot of pastors will not even want to preach on Herod, right? Because, you know, who wants to talk about a guy, you know, ordering the death of all kinds of infants. So you want to steer away from it. But at the same time, I think it's a really powerful message. And then it makes you think this person also was created in the image of God. And that's a heavy thing. It says that God chose to be born inside a world that was as violent and faithless as our own. That's an important message as well. My friend Joy wrote a a piece, I think it was in Christian Century. Oh gosh, it was probably 20 years ago. That was uh, Keep Herod in Christmas. (laughs) Yes! We have an amazing, talented artist in our congregation. She She's fabulous. And she makes little figurines of Herod. And we oh. put him in our nativity scenes. Yes. I know, right? It's because she's like, you got to have Herod in there. You got to have <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, can I read this? Can I read something from one of my books? I find myself getting pretty snotty about ridiculous commercial versions of Christmas that have no basis in the biblical text. So in the midst of trying to understand what there was, this is a a chapter about trying to figure out what to preach uh, after um, Sandy Hook. So in the midst of trying to understand what there was for a preacher to say about children being slaughtered in their schoolrooms at Christmas time, I found myself agitated by the sentimental Christmas music still playing in shops and asked myself, How did Christmas go from what it was originally? A story of alienation, political tyranny, homelessness, working class people, pagans and angels to a Hallmark Channel Precious Moments Norman Rockwell delusion. I didn't know the answer, but I suspected that certain songs were at least in part to blame. And hating Christmas songs is like what I minored in at college. So I just railed against that in the sermon since I had no idea what to say about the rest. If I asked 100 people the question, who brought gifts to the Christ child? How many people were there? Where were the people from? And where did they bring their gifts to? Inevitably, everyone would respond, well, three kings from the Orient brought the baby Jesus gifts in the manger. And the people around would likely nod their heads and say, yeah, that sounds right. Three kings from the Orient bringing gifts to Jesus in a manger is a charming story, but it's not actually the one we find in the Bible. A closer reading of Matthew shows we have no idea how many people were there. We don't know how from how far east they came. Was it the Orient? Was it New Jersey? We don't know. 
when they found the child, they entered not a stable or a barn with a manger, but a house. And most importantly, they were definitely not kings. They were magi, as in magicians, and not the cute kind you hire for your kid's birthday party. More likely, they were opportunistic pagan soothsaying tarot card reading astrologers, yet history made them out to be kings. Maybe because the reality that they were magicians is too distasteful, since no one really wants the weird fortune teller lady from the circus with her scarves and crystal balls to be the first to discover the birth of our Lord. So the story has been nicened up into an idealized picture of multicultural diplomacy. This is ironic, turning the Magi into kings like we're doing them some great favor, because honestly, everything in Matthew's story of the birth of Jesus is decidedly anti-king. I mean, there is a king in the text, but it's Herod, a scheming, frightened, insecure troglodyte who puts a hit out on a toddler. That is what this text has to say about kings. So turning the Magi into kings in our Christmas song sharply represents our need to tidy up the story. But the epiphany story of an infanticide reveals a God who has entered our world as it actually exists and not as the world we often wish it would be. God's love is too pure to enter into a world that does not exist, even though this is often how we treat Jesus. Like we're trying to shelter him from reality. We often behave as though Jesus is only interested in saving and loving a romanticized version of ourselves or an idealized version of our mess of a world. So we offer him a version of our best selves. With our Sunday school shoes on, we sing songs about kings and drummers at his birth, perhaps so we can escape the Herod in ourselves and in the world around us. But we've lost the plot if we use religion as the place we escape from difficult realities instead of as the place where those difficult realities are given meaning. Mm, yes. Thank you for reading that because I truly think people need to hear the, the grittiest parts of scripture. The last two sermons I preached, I was terrified because I preached on the weeds and the wheat recently, and we have parishioners read scripture. And I started like looking for a quote unquote better, more cleaned up version of that to make it sound less hellfire and brimstony. And I, I just went with the regular old NRSV. It sounds kind of terrifying because it talks about like the devil and fire and burning. And I remember sitting behind the man reading scripture. I'm like, oh my gosh, people are going to get up and leave before I get the chance to like preach. <laughs> it's so great because I, after my sermon, so many people came up to me and were like, thank you for preaching on that because like people, no one ever talks about stuff like that. Like we need to talk about it. It scares me, but I'm always so glad that I that I did it because I need I need to hear it too. Yeah. yeah. If you're not scared, you're not doing it right. <laughs> exactly. What are you doing now? Is there anything that people should be on the lookout for? Checking out if there's anything you want to share? Oh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, New Beginnings Worshiping Community is the church I serve inside the walls of the women's prison, which I love. You know, I, I write on Substack in the course, so if people want to read my sermons, they're there. And I'm, I've been working on a, a big project that I can't talk about yet. Um, so it, sadly, I'm sorry. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> if it, I hope so. We'll see. We're trying. I mean, it might not happen, but uh, I'm working on something I can't talk about and might not happen anyway. So it doesn't matter. How <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I'm happily not writing books right now, but yeah, I freaking love not writing a book. I wrote four in 11 years, I think. So it was just to not be, to be off that ride for a while has been really enjoyable to me. Yeah. And have the prison ministry, is this something, um, have you done prison ministry before? Is it a passion? Did you? I've worshiped at New Beginnings, you know, a few times over the last 15 years. 
but ended up when I left House for All four and a half years ago, I still wanted to be preaching, you know, and so I ended up saying to the pastor there, hey, you know, I'd love to preach every few months and give you a break. So I've been doing that for several years. And um, I actually have a letter of call from my bishop as pastor of public witness. So I'm officially attached to three congregations in Denver. So about once a month, usually I was preaching either at the Episcopal Cathedral or Montview Presbyterian or at New Beginnings in the prison, but their pastor left in, at New Beginnings. So that's why I'm there a couple of times a week now. And, and happily so, if I'm totally honest, like I've been in a ton of churches all over the world, you know, and I felt comfortable at House for All Sinners and Saints. There's a couple other churches I would feel like totally comfortable at, but that's just one of the only churches I feel completely comfortable at because it's just, it's just chaos. You know, it's a mess. Like we always said, we're anti-excellence pro participation at um, House and I, I like it to be messy. And, you know, the other day I realized at communion, I didn't have a child. I had not asked one of the women to be a chalice bearer. And I just point to the woman in the front row and I was like, do you want to do this? And she just lights up and she smiled. Honestly, like a few brown nubs of teeth left. I mean, methamphetamine does horrible things to people's teeth. And so most of her teeth were gone. And her face lit up when I said, do you want to be the chalice bearer? And she also had a tattoo on her face that's, you know, hand done that said savage. And so I'm sitting here and I'm realizing there's nothing else I would rather be doing than serving Eucharist with her in this place. So it, it is a place I feel really comfortable and I, I like being there in a way that I don't in a lot of churches. So. I was going to say, if that doesn't say God with us and powerful, spiritual, holy, holy moment. I don't know what does. That's amazing. A lot of mainstream churches, there just aren't a lot of those kind of moments. You know what I mean? It's just so buttoned up and it's so like scripted. And I'm like, what the fuck are we doing here? It matters deeply there. And and so, so happy to get to, to be with them. I mean, I, that's the church I'm a member of. And, and I think maybe that weaves nicely into the question that we always like to leave is, is how would you define the hope for the, the future of the church? What is the hope for the future of the church? What do you think it looks like? You know, um, in 2017, it was the 500 year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And since I'm everyone's like token Lutheran, I was all over the world doing talks that year. And often in the q and I would get that question. Like people would be like, what's the church of the future look like? And I always had a one word answer, which is decluttered. Oh, decluttered. Mm-hmm. A lot of the shit we've accumulated that really has nothing to do with the gospel. Honestly, I'm sorry, but a lot of buildings and things and budgets and meetings and parachurch organizations and institutions. And there's just all of that stuff that we really needed in the 60s when everyone was going to church. We don't probably need anymore. And I think the pandemic probably hastened the inevitable decline of a lot of it. And it's okay. The church will be fine. I, I'm unworried about the church because even if there's like none of our buildings left, none of our institutions, none of that, people will still gather maybe in each other's homes or parking garages or parks, I don't know. And they'll tell the story about the night Jesus was betrayed by his faltering friends and they'll 
hand bread to each other and say it's the body of Christ and it's for forgiveness and it's for you. And I think that is not going to go away. Because of that, I think that I have no worries about the church. Thank you so much. This has been a, a beautiful conversation. Thank you for your time and, and for your words. Dana and I both will be chewing on this conversation for quite some time. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, it's that's reassuring because I think exactly what you just said is just we're, we're tired of the institutionalization. And I mean, we want the declutter. We, we want to walk in and have that experience that you just shared with the woman in New Beginnings. It, it, we, that's what it's about. If I'm not feeling that, then there's other people who aren't feeling it too. You're not alone. I always say like people don't leave the church because they just don't believe the gospel. A lot of times people leave the church because they do believe the gospel and they believe it so much that they can't stomach being part of an institution that says it's about it and isn't. Thank you. Uh, Good luck, guys. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. Together, we are what God looks like. The Collective Table is supported by San Diego United Methodist Church in Encinitas, California, and the California Pacific Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. A big thank you to our producer and content editor, Claire Watson. If you'd like to financially support the work of The Collective Table, please visit us at thecollectivetable.org. There you can also find out more about who we are and view past episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, YouTube channel, and newsletter. And keep up with us on our Instagram and Facebook at The Collective Table.